Welcome to the Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I'm a writer for TheRinger.com, as is my colleague and my co-host, Michael Bauman. Hello. Hello. So this is going to be a multi-sport podcast. Later in this episode, we're actually going to talk to NFL player Mitch Schwartz, who is an offensive tackle for the Kansas City Chiefs. We're going to talk to him about data collection and wearable technology, but also about the differences and similarities between baseball and football, since he has a baseball background. But first, we're going to do a solely baseball-focused segment. So I will let you tee up our first guest. So we are joined now by 14-year big league veteran and the only member of the Root Sports booth not to eat the grasshoppers when the Astros <laughs> were last in Seattle. Jeff Blum, how you doing? I'm doing great. And, uh, you know, that was a real teaching moment for me. Don't give in to peer pressure. So this has become sort of a rite of passage as teams go through Seattle. And one of the surprising things is, you know, Todd Callis in the Houston booth and Todd Hollinsworth in Miami discovered that they actually really liked the the grasshoppers, but there was just nothing that could be done to talk you into eating. them. No, absolutely nothing. It's not, it's not in a food group. It's not a part of my food chain. And there's no reason for me to put an insect in my mouth. I hate insects to begin with. And I don't care how much lime, chili, chocolate, whatever you put on it, there's probably no chance I'm going to eat it. <laughs> okay. So this is your, your first year full-time in the Astros booth. How is working with Todd Callis as opposed to, to working with Bill Brown and, and Alan Ashby? Um, it's been really good. Todd is a true professional and he's been doing it long enough. And, you know, obviously he has the pedigree with his dad being, uh, you know, the voice of NFL films and the Philadelphia Phillies for so long that uh, he knows the game extremely well. It's easy, an easy conversation for me to have. Um, having worked with Bill Brown, who is a true professional too, you know, it's kind of interesting. We're kind of, you know, out with the old, in with the new type of thing. And this is Todd's really first chance to to create a voice for himself. So I think it's kind of fun to be along with him early in that journey to kind of create a voice for him, but also to create a team for both of us moving forward here in Houston. It's It's a good team to follow. And uh, we're trying to make it the best broadcast we can. But it's nice to have a, a new, fun, uh, invigorated voice uh, sitting next to me. It's, it's going to be good. Yeah, it does seem like you guys have a lot of fun in the booth. How long did it take that report to develop? Because, I mean, you guys have only been at this a couple months now. Yeah, you know what? Spring training was pretty interesting. And I, don't, I know that Todd listened to a lot of games before getting the job and uh, becoming my partner. And I don't know how much of it, how many of the games you've listened to, but I have a tendency to be a little bit goofy. Uh, uh, there's some sarcasm in it, but I like to have a good time. And I honestly feel that I'm still in the dugout when I'm calling a game. You know, I'm going to have some of that, some of the humor involved, but also take the game serious when it needs to be. And it was kind of interesting. I, I think I caught Todd off guard a couple times in spring training with some of the comments and, uh, you know, some of the references to uh, some movies and things like that, but he's adapted well. And now he's even thrown a couple at me that have kept me on my toes. So it's kind of fun to, to, uh, to evolve together, but he's doing a great job. He's a, he's a very adaptable guy. And obviously the knowledge and preparation he brings is huge. So you've been with this Astros team in some capacity, kind of at every stage of its development, you were with the team as a player in 2002 and 2003 when it was on its way up. And then you were with them again in 2009. 2010 when they were on their way down and then you joined as a broadcaster in 2013 and were there for the rise from basically worst team in baseball to one of the best so what is this whole arc kind of the decline and fall of a team and the rise of a team again have you <laughs> learned anything about i don't know team building or what leads to a, a team kind of you know going in the tank and then pulling themselves out of it again well it's interesting because the early 2000s, when I got traded over, Drayton McLean was still the owner of the team, and they had Jerry Hunter was a GM. So they had a, they did a good job of accruing talent, and they were just coming out of the 90s where they were very good competitive teams. And yes. then uh, they were trying to patchwork it back together, you know, around Biggio Bagwell, Billy Wagner. Um, they had some good guys in the bullpen, but uh, Roy Oswald was just coming up, and the Morgan Ensbergs, Adam Everett's. So I had a real chance to see, you know, how a draft worked. But I also had a chance to see how free agency worked with them bringing some guys in. And obviously, I came in uh, via the trade. Um, I got traded away for Brandon Backey, who ended up being a big piece of what they were doing uh, in the mid-2000s. So I saw it in that sense. But when I came back, I also understood what it was like to see an owner basically give up. Drayton McLean, I think, was done. Uh, gave it his best shot through the mid-2000s. And I think towards the end of the 2000, you know, around 2009-10, 
was really when you started to see him think about and debate selling that team. And that's when he started to get rid of some of the mainstays and accrue a little bit older talent. And uh, obviously you saw the numbers go in the, in the tank. He ended up selling the team. But now the best part for me is watching a, a new owner and in, in Jim Crane and a relatively new GM in Jeff Luno institute a plan and execute it to a T um, as rough as it was in 2013 and 14. It's that it's that good right now, and it's a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, and so the 2010 team that was your last year with the Astros as a player, that was uh, you know a mediocre team. That was the second to last year of the Ed Wade era. Could you foresee what was coming? I mean, no one knew exactly what methods the Astros and Jeff Luna would use, but could you tell this is coming to an end and they're going to have to sell all of these older guys and and rebuild from scratch? Um, I don't know if I knew the end was coming, but I knew an adjustment need to, needed to be made. And I just, uh, and again, you know, that old regime or that older thinking in baseball was if I crew enough, if I get enough older veteran all-star type guys, the better we're going to be. And I think when Jim Crane came in and put Jeff Luno in charge, they went a little more analytics. They did a good job in St. Louis. Obviously, uh, Luno had a great track record there, but now he actually had his hand on the switch and actually was pulling the trigger on some of these moves. Um, It's been really interesting to see how the trade evolved and how they evaluate talent. And I thought it was also interesting to watch how they develop some of this talent. A lot of people think development, you're trying to get the individual player to, to maximize his talent. But I think they did a good job of getting guys in positions to win because once you instill that winning attitude in these guys, they'll do whatever it takes to win. And I think that their talent is going to get them to the big leagues, but that that idea of winning is what's going to keep them here and keep them playing well together for a long time. So it's been a lot of fun to watch and I'm starting to, I'm at least trying to understand more of the analytical side to to go with my baseball experience. Yeah, I was going to ask about that too, because as the Astros have evolved over your involvement with the team, and as you've evolved and gotten older, and you know, transitioned careers, how do you find yourself viewing the game differently? Whether it's learning about stats, learning about player development stuff, versus drawing on your own experience as a player. Um, I, you know, I wish I would have known then what I know now kind of thing is what's going on. I know that I went out and played and tried to, to play as best to, to my uh, ability as I could, but now understanding why a guy is in a certain situation, you know, why is Dallas Keuchel, Charlie Morton, who uh, Joe Musgrove, why are these guys succeeding as an Astro in Minute Maid Park? Because if you look at the pitching staff, the numbers these guys are putting up in Minute Maid Park is ridiculous. Um, you know, they've got three ERAs, sometimes sub three ERAs in a, in a ballpark that has prototypically been a hitter's ballpark, but it's because the analytics went out there and said, these guys are staying down in the zone. They have good sinkers. They've got good spin rates on their breaking balls to stay down in the zone. So this is how they're using some of the numbers to create a ball player to put in a good situation. I think that's all analytics are trying to do is give teams an opportunity to fill their rosters with guys they think are going to succeed in their system. Um, Obviously you can manipulate those a little bit, but I think the Astros are doing a good job. Um, It's fun to watch these guys get on base, especially with the lineup that they have now, because there's such an emphasis after Moneyball on, uh, on base percentage. But now you're starting to see some of the slugging numbers be implemented. implemented. Uh, so when guys get on base, you start to see some more two, three run home run type situations, or you see the base hit that drives into guys. So they're really putting a lot of pressure on defenses and pitching staffs because they get on base so often. But uh, I, I can explain so much as far as the player mentality, the hitter mentality. But now I'm getting numbers and uh, some statistics and analytics that might actually back up what I'm trying to say as far as tendencies when you're facing a pitcher who throws a slider 85% of the time in an 0-2 count, you know, trying to help use those numbers to help you be a better ball player. And when you started calling games, the Astros were still in the throes of that rebuilding process. And I think a lot of the sabermetric uh, writers and and thinkers approved of what they were doing, but you would constantly hear these whispers or louder than whispers about, you know, players being unhappy with the shift or the way that the team treated them or opposing people in the game would, you know, have anonymous comments about this and that. And the Astros are treating players like robots and all that sort of thing. And you don't hear that anymore now that the Astros are winning. And I don't know whether that's because it's just been a few years and the things they were doing have been accepted and proved successful or whether they have evolved in the way that they communicate their message. So I don't know from your perspective, whether you think that the Astros have kind of gotten better as 
communicators, whether it's the the front office people or the the coaches or the field staff, or whether the game has just kind of caught up to the way they were operating at the time? No, it's a good thought and it's interesting, but it's, it's relatively simple for me just having been around these guys for so long in 2013, 14, obviously when they were terrible, the one thing that has been constant from 2013, 14, all the way now to 2017 has been the analytics. The one thing that has changed is the talent level. The talent yeah. level in 2013-14, I've played on bad teams. I've been called a bad player, so I know this is going to sound a little offensive to some of these guys, but they were terrible. Those teams were <laughs> awful. Uh, they, were, they were trying to patchwork bullpens together. They were trying to patchwork rotations together. They didn't have a set infield, and the defense was disastrous. So, I mean, they were kind of really going through some growing pains and basically used those guys in 13 and 14 just to kind of tread water for a little bit and say they had a big league team until this new talent group came through. And now these guys have exploded onto the scene and the talent is making the analytics better. Cause when you read all those articles in 13, 14, they never talked about the talent. They just blamed shifts and uh, analytics. Mm-hmm. And how is the, you know, over your 15 years or so of, of being involved with Houston sports culture, how has the, the fan culture evolved from, from what you can see either from the, the field or the, or the broadcast booth? Um, it's been great. I know that our viewership has gone up and obviously we had some, uh, you know, uh, coverage rights early on in 13 and 14 with the transition of the team and the network and things like that. But those have all been ironed out and we're starting to reach a broader spectrum out there. So it's been good. But at the timing of it's been great because the team has been good. There's been highly marketable guys on our roster. Um, but uh, it, it's a good time to be a Houston mm-hmm a Houston fan. Uh, we know the Texans, uh, even though they didn't make it all that far in the playoffs, have been in the playoffs. The Rockets are doing extremely well. You've got a couple of guys with beards and James Harden and Dallas Keuchel who are, you know, get a lot of TV time and have been doing well. But now with 2015 happening the way it did when they snuck into the playoffs, 16 was a little bit of a letdown, but I think the expectation level with some of the offseason moves that they've made have kind of sent the message to Houston fans that, hey, we're in this for the long haul. We want to keep the Correas around. We want to keep the Bregmans around, the Altuves, Keuchel's. McCullers, but we're also going to sprinkle in some veteran guys like a Beltron and McCann and Reddick to really help these guys push through the next level and become contenders for a couple more years. And you brought up something that I've been a little critical of the Astros because they've still, even though they're successful, they've got a middling payroll in top five media market. And, you know, I don't know if the next step is to go spend on more veteran players or whether it's to to keep around, you know, make sure that you lock up Correa, Altuve, Springer, Keuchel, McCullers, those guys long term. So what do you if you were running the Astros and you had an extra 50 million dollars a year to spend, what, what would you do? Well, if I could, I would lock up the, the Lance McCullers and the Carlos Correa's and maybe Dallas Keuchel might be a little bit tougher just because he's a little bit older. So there's more club control of Correa and McCullers. So you might be able to entice them to sign a little bit more of a club friendly deal to get them through free agency. That would be appealing, but I know for a fact, and I've talked to uh, several people in the organization, if they have an option and they have the kind of money and the team is in the right position, they're going to go out and sign a, a high-end reliever, whether it be through free agency or to be of the trade. I think they're really exploring the options. And I feel the same way. I think they're bullpen. They've got a, they've done a great job with Davinsky, Harris, Gregerson, Ken Giles in the back end of that bullpen. That's that's four innings of a game right there that you're, you're shutting down. And then uh, Keuchel and McCullers are going deep in ball games. But if you have that third starter that could be a one, two, three for you and really push games in the sixth, seventh inning, I think that would do them extremely good, just in the sense that if they do get to the playoffs and you condense those series, that's where you see that power one, two, three in a rotation really shred through some teams in the playoffs. Yeah, I want to ask you about Keuchel and McCullers because the concern coming into this season was the rotation, specifically the top of the rotation. Everyone knew that this team was going to hit and it has. Correa hasn't even hit yet and yet everyone else in the lineup has been great top to bottom and you know he's not going to be a problem. But Keuchel and McCullers have been great and of course there was a lot of concern about Keuchel after his sort of injury plagued and, and down year last year and McCullers was also a guy who's had injury issues and people have wondered whether he'd end up in the bullpen. And through each of their first four starts, they've been fantastic. So what do you think has been the key to their success thus far? Or what else would they have to work on? Um, I think that the one thing that really leads to a lot of confidence, especially at the big league level, is health. I think that both of those guys are 100% healthy and they're going out there and doing a very good job of executing their game plan with the pitches that they have. I think it was a little bit of concern in spring training, but it 
again, you know, we, we put so much, sometimes too much emphasis on spring training for starting pitchers. And uh, this was a unique spring training in the sense that the WBC was out there. So there were two, two extra weeks put into spring training. So it really kind of stunted the progress of some of these guys. But Keiko and McCullers ramped it up the last couple of weeks of spring training, had some great starts. But uh, they're, they're enjoying throwing to a veteran like Brian McCann, who's caught all their starts. They're working well together. They're in good communication. But health for me is the, is the biggest thing. If you're healthy and you can be able to repeat your delivery as a pitcher consistently, you're going to be great. And these guys have a good program, a good routine right now. Uh, A.J. Hinch has done a good job, even with a rain out and a couple days off, to keep these guys on their five-day schedule and keep them in routine, which is huge. So going back to the what it's like to be a broadcaster, how did you – decide that that's what you wanted to to do when you were done playing uh, they offered me a job <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was, it was pretty simple I, it wasn't one of those things that i went out and said hey i want to be a, a studio broadcaster i, I want to be a uh, uh an in-game color analyst it was just i wanted to be a part of the game somehow some way and in talking to a lot of the veteran guys that I've played with over the years that have now taken managerial jobs like Brad Osmus, Dave Roberts, uh, some guys in front offices is, you know, what, what do you recommend a guy do at the end of his career? And they said, if you want to stay in the game, find a way to stay around the game. So I started massaging those contacts, but with the timing, with the sale of the Astros and they wiped out all of their, uh, all of their media with between radio and TV. Um, I just wanted an interview to be relevant or to stay relevant and keep my name in the mix and it just turns out they offered me the job and uh, it's been five years now and I've been having a blast I think most people think of you as an ex-player as an Astro that's where you played more games than anywhere else but one of the biggest moments of your career came at the Astros expense you know it was your only World Series at bat you hit a what wound up being a game-winning home run for the White Sox which I think ties you at least ties you for best World Series hitter of all time but did that make coming back difficult you know knowing that that memory was burned in everybody's mind yeah and that was really the last time that the Houston Astros were even successful in the playoffs to begin with. <laughs> but uh, I signed back with them in uh, 2008, 9, and 10. So obviously when I signed back, there were issues because they were still lingering from that home run. But then I get the job as a broadcaster, and they're going to hear my voice a lot more frequently. And the first couple of years were a little rough. Uh, Twitter, Twitter had its way with me, and I, I learned early on that I would avoid saying just the, the year 2005. I just completely eliminated that from the vocabulary and it's kind of gone over pretty good, but uh, you know, they're, 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 they're understanding fans in Houston. They've been gracious to me. They've been gracious to my family, but uh, you got to remember too, this, this team that's playing right now, they have a real chance to uh, put all that a distant memory. And I'm really hoping that they do. Cause then we can start talking about something else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we're always sort of trying to get to the bottom of the mystery of clubhouse chemistry and whether it comes from winning or whether it helps inspire winning. And your career really ran the gamut in terms of team success. You came up with the expo, when they were sort of circling the drain in Montreal and those teams were winning 67, 68 games. And then a few years later, you're winning a World Series and, you know, you were with great teams and, and terrible teams and you were mostly the, the same guy, it seemed like. So is that the case? Like, do you find that the team's success has a significant impact on a player's performance? Does it matter more if a player's coming up with a losing team and doesn't get that taste of winning at first? Or do we make too much of this sort of thing and players are just players, even if maybe they're happier with one team at at one time? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you can be complacent and be happy where you're at. But I think most guys to a T are going to tell you that they want to go out there and win. But I know for a fact when I was coming up with Montreal, I didn't think about winning a World Series. I thought about getting to the big leagues, and that was my vehicle. And I knew that they would bring up young talent. So I just played as hard as I possibly could with the ability I was given and I got an opportunity with Montreal, which seems to be, you know, how most guys did it with Montreal. And it was, you know, it was a nickname for Montreal. We called it the university of Montreal because we basically went there, graduated from there and went to other teams. (laughs) And that's basically what happened with me going to to Houston. Then I played on some very good teams in Houston. Uh, I got traded away and went to Tampa where we were awful. Um, We had a good group of guys, but we didn't win many ballgames. So it got kind of frustrating down the stretch. And then San Diego had some great stretches with San Diego. We won the West in 05, 06. I got traded to the White Sox and somehow mixed into a clubhouse that was 15 games up and didn't screw that up. 
and mm-hmm. which was probably the biggest thing for me going over there was not how do I not mess this up but they took me in and it was you know it was unique because you have those clubhouses that understand they're winning and they understand that the reason I was over with the Chicago White Sox was to win and they welcomed me with open arms and I just mixed right in because they were having a good time San Diego was the same way signed back there as a free agent and it was just like a welcome home party everybody was having a great time but we all had the same understanding and the same work ethic. It's not something you can put a finger on or look at or listen to and say, oh, this guy's going to work because you really never know until you get him in there. But the one thing, but the underlying theme is winning is the cure of all evil everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it makes the biggest jerk in AJ Perzinski or somebody like that <laughs> into the best teammate because you're out there winning ball games. And I've got no problem with AJ. We're still good friends to this day, and I had no problem with him. But again, maybe it was a you know circumstances of what what we were in in, in Chicago that will live forever and will be a part of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, wherever you are, you have a powerful incentive to work hard and play well, right? Because you want to be in the big leagues. You have a lot of money mm-hmm. at stake riding on your performance. So I'm sure it's a lot more fun to go to work when you're winning and everyone's happy. And of course, every player wants to win. But I just always wonder whether that has a really significant impact on the player's performance, given that even if it's a 60 win team, each individual player has a lot riding on every plate appearance. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, man, the mentality is I've got to provide for my family because you're right. At the end of the day, this is a job to us. It's, it's obviously a very short window to go out and create a, a reasonable amount of earnings. And there are going to be some guys that are better than others because you're going to have the Mike Trouts, the Carlos Correa's that go out there and dominate the game because they just have pure athletic ability. And then you've got that second tier of guys who are really just trying to extend careers somehow. And they've got to be that good clubhouse guy. They've got to be that chemistry. They've got to be that glue. Uh, but they also have to go out there with the mentality, understanding that if in order for me to have a big league job and maintain myself in this job for a, for a while and create a career out of it, I have to be a good clubhouse guy because my, my ability is not going to overshadow me being a jerk. I've got to go out there and be a stable influence, be a consistent influence, provide production when I can, but at the same time, not be that jerk in the clubhouse who's being divisive. So it's time for me to to ask the college baseball question to annoy Ben. And you've got uh, a really interesting story where you and a bunch of Cal alumni came together and helped rescue uh, that program in 2011 when it was in danger of being shut down. You know, and then they went to the College World Series that year. So what was that experience like? You know, how did all that come together? Um, it was frustrating, and it all came together because Sandy Barber, the athletic director at the time, and a bunch of chancellors up at Cal where I went to school and loved dearly, just completely obliterated the budget and put them in a hole where they were, they had to make a tough decision. And one of the decisions was to cut baseball. And, And as much as I hate to say it, and as much as I hate to admit it, baseball is not a revenue producing sport at a university, even though it's a big three, as far as overall professional sports. So they made a couple of bad decisions and they put it on the alumni to bring that team back. Uh, She made it aware that they were going to cut the baseball program and decided to call out a couple of uh, alumni who made it to the major leagues and help uh, in in order to uh, encourage us, so to speak, to be contributors. And we had a couple of conference calls with Jeff Kent, uh, Xavier Nady, uh, Connor Jackson, Brandon Morrow. Uh, there were a couple other guys on there and, uh, we got together, we rallied up some money and we brought back Cal baseball. Um, it wasn't one of the finer moments I think in the university, but at the same time, I think it was one of the finer moments for the alumni to actually step in and understand that baseball college baseball is such a huge part of us and still is a huge part of me. And I give them a lot of credit uh, as far as Cal is concerned for me having a job right now that I'm able to complete a sentence. And I have that, not a degree, but I have the experience at Cal and understanding that I can go out and study and read a book and, and talk on air, I think helped me get the job that I have now. But we all had to step up and get that team back. And now we kind of jokingly say that we're all part owners of Cal Baseball. But we're also part owners of uh, gymnastic, women's gymnastics, lacrosse, field hockey, and I think rugby. So my last question has to do with the some of the changes to Minute Maid Park. And specifically in center field, there's no more Towels Hill, which I view as a bad thing. But there is now a Torchy's Tacos on the concourse, which I view as a very good thing. And in your mind, is that a fair trade, Torchy's, for Towels Hill? 
without a doubt. Don't forget Shake Shack is out there too, which is a pretty darn good burger. But uh, Torchy's is, is one of the better taco joints in all of uh, all of Texas. And now we got one way too close in my vicinity for my uh, <laughs> my post playing career body. No, get rid of Tal's Hill. I know that a lot of people like the nostalgia of having a hill. It was a throwback. It, it took away so many hits and caused so much frustration for hitters. And I know that pitchers enjoy it. And the interesting thing about, I know it's early in the season. There's been maybe 13 or 14 home games, I think. There's only been one home run to dead center field so far. And it hit the batting eye and would have gone mm-hmm. over Tal's Hill, which is ironic enough. But I, I was not a big fan of Tal's Hill. All right. Well, I think we've now we've got torches and we've covered all the bases. So you can uh, follow <laughs> Jeff Blum on Twitter at Blummer27. You can hear him on the Astros uh, home television broadcast. Thanks so much for joining us. No, I appreciate you guys having me on and thanks for working with me. All right, so we are joined now by Mitch Schwartz. He is a football player, our first football player on a baseball podcast. He's an offensive tackle for the Kansas City Chiefs, and you might be wondering why we're having an NFL player on an MLB podcast. All will be explained, but his first love actually is baseball. Hey, Mitch. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so the way you described it to me when you reached out to me a few months ago is that you essentially became too big for baseball <laughs> at some point. That's what it sounded like. Pretty much. I mean, I grew up playing since I was about age four or so, and I was the big kid who threw hard, and I threw harder than anyone. So I kind of just skated by on my ability to throw harder than kids could hit. And then I got to high school and plateaued and pretty much through 80, maybe topped out at 81, 82, and sure enough, everyone caught up and left me in the dust. And I kind of just migrated into playing football. I mean, you know, it just became a natural progression. I realized baseball wasn't my thing. Like you said, I don't know if, you know, I got too big. There's not too many guys my size in, in baseball these days. So uh, just stop yeah. being able to throw hard and, and being effective. And we want to ask you about a few differences between baseball and football, but one specific reason we brought you on was to talk about this deal that the NFL Players Association made, unbeknownst to you, it turns out, <laughs> with yeah. uh, a, a data tracking company called Whoop. And a little bit of background, Michael and I last year interviewed the CEO of Whoop on this podcast because their devices, which are little biometric monitoring wristbands were being used with minor league baseball players last year. And this year they were actually approved for use in the majors along with a a couple other devices that had been used before, but it's sort of informal. Players can use them if they want to. They were approved for use, but nothing mandatory. I don't think there was any actual licensing agreement here. But with the NFL, it, it seems that there was. And again, it's voluntary and players don't have to wear anything. But the NFLPA made a deal to sell that data from any players who are willing to use it to whoop. I'm curious about your thoughts on this because Michael and I are always interested in this aspect of data collection and what athletes think about it because this stuff can be useful from a, a training perspective, but there are also ways in which you could imagine it sort of being exploited by the teams to the athlete's detriment. This stuff is tracking your recovery rates and your exertion and your sleep. And if you had a late night or something and you're wearing this whoop device and your team has access to it, then your team knows what you're up to. So this is totally voluntary. What are your thoughts on whether you'd be interested in wearing something like this? Yeah, I think you kind of hit it. I think guys are a little skeptical at first, you know, especially when it comes from the team. I think in this instance, it looks like it's from the PA. And, you know, I guess if they would have the data and we would have to give our consent to give it out to whoop and who knows what they'll do with it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when I was in Cleveland, we did some different stuff in terms of guys wearing like the catapult and tracking GPS data and how far yeah. you're moving, how much you're running in practice, how quickly you're going. Um, you know, we did a couple of sleep studies and like you said, they obviously you have to agree to do that. It's not something they can force on you, but it's something you can learn about your sleep and, you know, maybe if you need to go to bed at the right time or wake up at the right time. And I think it's all fascinating. I think, like you said, it's all really interesting. It's just the question is to what end? And, you know, that's mm-hmm. kind of where the skepticism comes is, you know, what happens if it shows I'm not as good as I think I am, or, you know, I'm doing something wrong that you really never knew before. And, 
could potentially lead to something bad down the line. And, you know, I think that's the thing that we don't really know right now. And we don't know how the data would be used. Yeah. And just personally, as someone who's generally pro-labor and you know, pro-employee rights and pro-employee privacy, there were a lot of obvious ways that this could get misused. And the first one, you know, we had Travis Falchuk, who's a, a Pirates Beat writer at the time on last summer. And he talked to us about the pirates using wearable tech and biometrics and stuff like that. And he said it was voluntary, but my question is, does the concept of voluntary exist in the NFL? You know, you know how the player skips optional workouts, how that gets covered, you know, and there's so much, so much social pressure to, to take, you know, to take one for the team essentially. So is there such a thing as a, a voluntary, you know, device that, you know, I know it's a PA now, but if a team asks you to do something like this, how voluntary is voluntary? I think you really do have the option to do it. I mean, uh, some guys would not do it just because it didn't really feel good. Uh, the way they did it was a little um, device that kind of went on the top of your back. And if you were a guy who wore like a loose fit shirt underneath and it kind of tugged at you and made the front of your neck feel uncomfortable, some guys just wouldn't do it. Or, you know, you could have the equipment guys kind of alter your shirt so you would do it. But at the end of the day, I mean, like you said, there was, I guess, peer pressure. They want you to do it. They obviously want the data to figure out um, what the guys are doing. But it's something that I don't think would, you know, negatively impact you in any regard. At the end of the day, it's just, you know, seeing how many miles you run in practice and maybe what your top speed is. And I guess that's kind of the question is, like I said, it's to what end is, is the data being used? I mean, you know, we were kind of told that, hey, we're just trying to monitor workloads. We're trying to figure out, you know, how to optimize practice, how to make the schedule better. And through talking to the strength coach and, and some other guys who were kind of integrated with that, you know, there were times where we were practicing really hard for, you know, consecutive days in a row. And you realize, hey, maybe we need to pull back a little. These guys are being overworked. We're at more of a risk for injury. And so in instances like that, it helps you. But you're also, like I said, kind of skeptical. You're not sure what the underlying stuff is and um, how it could potentially negatively impact you. Yeah. And there's a bunch of different ways that you could react because, you know, talking to baseball players, I've talked to some who have been like, well, the team just wants me to get better. And, you know, we're in this after the same goal, which is winning. And there are others, you know, like you said, if the device is uncomfortable or if they're concerned about their employer watching them while they sleep, or if some guys I imagine are just sort of creeped out by the idea of like wearing a machine that's talking <laughs> to their body or whatever. So yeah. you know, how I imagine there are, there are guys like that and many other different reactions that you have across an NFL locker room too. Yeah, I think, you know, if it's something you're wearing all the time, I'd imagine the guys who stay up late, potentially go out, they'd be a little more reticent to, to hop into that. You know, I'm a guy who's pretty much in bed by 1030 every night anyway, so uh, I don't have too much to hide from that perspective. But I do think, you know, guys just have a feeling that the less info or the less maybe they know about you, the the, the better, um, the less potential bad things could come out of that situation. You know, at the end of the day, I feel like most players just kind of feel like whatever you do on your private time is what you need to do as long as you're performing on Sundays, as long as you're practicing well and, you know, giving the team the performance that you need to give them. Uh, none of the other stuff really matters. And I think, you know, this kind of whole data collection movement is trying to figure out what of all that other stuff we can optimize and make more efficient. And maybe that leads to better training and results and you can practice harder and better and, you know, produce more. So it's kind of a fine line to figure out what of that data would be useful, what would be applicable. And then um, obviously as a player being comfortable to, to share that. And in your previous experience with wearables in Cleveland, did you learn anything about yourself as a player? Was there anything that you changed about your preparation or that the team changed that was explicitly a result of this data that you know of? No, I think it was kind of more of a joke. We would just kind of figure out who had the easiest practice and who had the hardest practice. Um, <laughs> typically we had a center, Alex Mack, who's with the Atlanta Falcons now. And uh, he's pretty crazy out there in terms of how much he runs around and uh, just flying all over the place. So it'd be no surprise that he would have, you know, the highest distance or the highest output. And then he would kind of figure out and see who had the lowest and more make fun of each other than anything. Um, mm -hmm. Like I said, I mean, we didn't really get much of the data from back from them. You know, you kind of had to talk to the coaches and talk to the people who used it and try to figure out what they were doing. You know, it wasn't something that they put out there for us. It was more of a, hey, you know, this, this stuff will benefit you. But to learn how it benefited you, you had to go ask. And there, there wasn't at the time, I mean, it's my personal opinion, especially when you're only kind of wearing something that figures out how fast you're going and how long of a distance you're traveling. You can only do so much with that, mm -hmm. you know, from especially from an offensive line perspective. I think it'd be much more interesting to have a true heart rate monitor and figure out, you know, how hard you're working, how 
strenuous this activity is, you know, that's then when you get into the situation where you're like, oh, you know, maybe they realize I have to work harder than other guys and, you know, they don't think I'm as strong or as powerful or all those other things. So to me, it was kind of more just like a, a thing that they did just because they could. And it could lead to some, some things where they just get a, a general glimpse of overall workload. But until you measure really heart rate and, and all those other things, you can't get a full comprehension of it. You know, there's stuff that they can test your blood and see if you're, you know, you have the body of a 25 year old or a 35 year old or whatever. And mm-hmm. you know, that stuff, it just kind of freaks you out and you worry about I it. I definitely and- don't want to know that about myself. so i want to steer the conversation back to baseball a little bit you know you talked about being getting too big for the game and you know i don't know how if that's specifically true because you look at guys like aaron judge or even you know kyle long another nfl offensive lineman who pitched all the way up to to college ball at florida state but people you know people's physicality changes in different ways so for how many guys and particularly because we're talking about kids choosing baseball or football and weighing the pros and cons between playing those two games. But, you know, how many guys is playing in the NFL versus playing professional baseball actually a choice? Do you think who could actually physically do both? <laughs> yeah, I think very few. I mean, you know, a guy like Stan jumps out. I mean, he had a scholarship to go to USC and play tight end or really whatever position he wanted to. I mean, he's a, a, a freak there. I mean, you know, you hear about guys, I mean, Jake Locker is the classic what if, right? I mean, he theoretically would have been first overall pick if he had chosen that route and who knows what could have happened. I think very few are, are good enough to do both at a high enough level to actually be successful on a, on a professional level. Obviously, the the Tebow thing going on right now, you haven't heard too much about it on Twitter lately, so he must not have hit a home <laughs> run recently. Um, but it's, it's really hard. And, you know, I'm, I'm all for just playing as many sports as possible as a young kid and, and leaving all the doors open. If you're good enough in high school to have that opportunity to choose, obviously it gets a lot harder and it is pretty hard to, to play both in college, but there's so few guys. I mean, for me, it's not like I had got too big. I mean, my body clearly wasn't built to throw a baseball uh, hard enough to be successful with uh, past the high school level. So um, you just kind of realize that it's time. And, you know, for the guys who do have the opportunity, it's it's a lot of factors that you have to weigh. Um, you know, I like we said, I, I grew up loving baseball, playing baseball. I didn't get into high, uh, f- football until high school. So that was always my, my first love sport growing up. And that's something that I always wanted to do. I just uh, physically got better at the other and realized that was my uh, path to college and potential path to the professional. You mentioned to me that you followed baseball closely and then you drifted away from it a bit. And then your love of the sport was rekindled recently. What do you miss about baseball from a playing perspective? Is there anything different about kind of the clubhouse atmosphere, just the schedule or the game itself? Is there anything that football doesn't quite supply that you really liked about baseball? I think pitching, I mean, pitching is just a lot of fun to be able to, you know, be in control for a hundred pitches or I guess that's the max you're allowed these days anyway, but you know, 100, 120 pitches. And I actually think there's a lot of parallels to offensive line play just in terms of setting guys up for things that are happening down the road. I mean, you don't have a very specific one batters up and the next batter, but you have a lot of plays in a game that can be similar to something else. And there's always counters to it. You know, maybe on a specific pass play, you block a guy the same way the first three times and you know, he's getting a feel for you. You're getting a feel for him. Maybe, you know, you throw in a different pass at the next play, kind of your change up your curve ball, whatever to throw them off, you know, mix up the timing. There's a lot of parallels, like I said, in that perspective, in terms of just kind of the game within the game and uh, figuring out what's going to be successful, what's not going to be successful, what technique to use, you know, what pitch is going to work, what pitch isn't going to work, how to uh, set a guy up for something towards the end of the game when, you know, maybe, you know, you're going to only going to run a play twice in one game. And, you know, the first time you do, it's a way to test the waters and see how he's going to react to it. And then you're pretty confident the next time. So there are a lot of parallels, but at the end of the day, I mean, there's nothing that's going to be the same as just getting out there and pitching and everything that comes with that. So particularly at the end of the season, you go into a big league locker room. There's guys who have, you know, football. You know, football helmets hanging in their lockers or you know, they've got a, a fantasy football league or a pool going. And so football's just always sort of in the background, particularly late in the, late in the baseball season. Is that does that go the other way? Do you find yourself talking about the World Series with with your teammates after practice or stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, there's I'd say there's more probably baseball players that are football fans and football players that are baseball fans. Probably more Americans who are football fans <laughs> and baseball <laughs> fans. And so that's True. not that's surprising. Uh, yeah. So I think it's, 
you just find guys that are into baseball and you talk about the World Series with them. I mean, last year's World Series was awesome. And, you know, we got some guys who are from the Cleveland area and I was in Cleveland. So you kind of have a feel for that city and, you know, how awesome they were feeling for a little bit and then how dejected it was uh, at the end there. But you do find the guys and, you know, baseball will be on the TVs every now and again. But, you know, I think, like I said, probably a, a bigger thing for baseball guys to keep up on football. But for the guys who do love baseball, it's awesome to be able to talk to them. And, you know, something that, like I said, it's kind of, the game has gotten back to me a little bit and there's so many guys that are fun to watch now and it's just it's hard to not throw on a game and see a guy who's exciting to watch and going back sort of to the the data collection do you have any sense of how the preparation varies between baseball and football you haven't played a 162 game baseball season but you have some experience i mean you are playing a lot less frequently but you're subjecting yourself and others to a lot more punishment per game and and just so much risk and physical danger whereas in baseball you've got the grind and it's just day in and day out and can be a, a mental strain as well as something that can cause a lot of fatigue so what's your understanding of the differences in terms of preparation whether physical or, or mental mental for those vastly different challenges and season lengths yeah i think you know football wise like you said you have the 16 games in a season and you know everything you do is very focused for maximum success on on those days you know we have a mandatory day off during the week during the football season and that's something those baseball guys don't have so uh, whether it's monday or tuesday you know you get the day off you get to do whatever you need to do in terms of getting your body right but it's also you know kind of a mental day off uh you don't have any meetings you don't have to wake up and be anywhere you know usually you watch some film of, of the team upcoming kind of get a, a feel for them but it is a way to step away from it and those baseball guys like you said it's a grind i mean what is it 162 games in 180 days and you know not many days off and it's just on to the next city you know we travel on saturday and then we play sunday we get right on the plane we fly back you know those guys are on road trips half the year and they're gone from their family from their kids you know they have a lot more stress in, in that regard you know i think a lot of the things we do obviously getting stronger getting faster trying to be as you know mentally tough as you can to kind of deal with the physicality but it's also just being able to deal with the length of the season you know our season is pretty long uh, there's a lot of stress because you have so few opportunities to actually go out and play you know baseball you get 600 at bats in a year you know any particular one will be important but you know the next day you're going to get your three or four or five at bats uh, you know for us you got that one Sunday and then you got to sit on it for a week so whether you have a good game or a bad game you kind of have to flush that from your system but you have the full week to think about it so you have to figure out a way to you know kind of deal with that sort of preparation that a baseball guy he can just jump into the next game right away um, you know I compare it more to a pitcher obviously who pitches once every five or six days and uh, I think our preparation is probably more similar than a, a position player. Mm -hmm. And since we were talking about the union, that's a big difference between baseball and football too. Baseball has a, a much stronger union and you know, you got a, a five-year deal, really good contract, but of course it's a football contract, so it's <laughs> not guaranteed. Right. How much discussion of that is there among football players? Is there envy of baseball contracts and that security? Oh yeah. I mean, you know, you see a guy sign a $315 million contract that's fully guaranteed. And, you know, the top football guys are maybe at 140 or 50 of that's guaranteed. There's definitely envy. I think, you know, I keep up on all that stuff. So I'm a little more aware of it and I understand the differences. You know, they have half the number of players as us. Each individual market has their own deal. You know, we're locked into a national TV deal. It's not like we can go to the Kansas City local market and say, how much do you want to pay for our rights? You know, Fox and CBS and all of them negotiate that separately. So, um, I understand the, the differences and I know baseball, you know, they have a, a better precedent in terms of the guaranteed contracts and also the lower risk injury. So, you know, the fully guaranteed contracts thing, that's, that's a question of if that will ever happen. You know, that's probably a quarterback or maybe a guy who just has insane leverage, a pass rusher, someone who hits the open market. In football, for guaranteed contracts for it to be feasible, you'd probably have to do a shorter deal. Um, you know, you think of maybe Darrell Revis would be the closest example of a guy who pretty much just bet on himself every single year. And, you know, he would sign a six-year deal, but really it would be a, a one-year deal year to year. And there's always a way to get out of it or a way to earn more money the next year. And I think that's really the closest anyone's gotten to a type of fully guaranteed contract recently. So mm -hmm. 
it's something that obviously you're envious of when you see just the massive amounts of money guys get and you know the the guarantees but i think we most guys understand the difference and just know it's a different sport and you know you're kind of just happy for them i mean good for them that they're able to do that Mm -hmm. and earlier in this episode we talked to jeff blum who joined the astros as a broadcaster when they were just instituting their analytics focused regime and you were with the browns when paul de podesta was hired of course of moneyball fame and you then left to join the chiefs and and played with the chiefs last season so i don't know how much you were around the team in the aftermath of his hiring but what are your thoughts on analytics as they apply to football obviously behind baseball in terms of adoption and and a more difficult to break down statistically in the same way but what sort of changes either have you witnessed or might we witness whether in terms of preparation or in game or drafting or or anything I think that there's been analytics for years. I mean, it kind of just has the name now and there are guys who are quote unquote analytics guys or guys who are just purely look at numbers and kind of have the stereotype of, you know, 15 years ago, what baseball guys had to go through. Like you Mm -hmm. said, I think football is just so much harder to control your variables. There's so much going on and so much is dependent on so many other factors. Whereas a baseball guy, I mean, you can get a war on anybody where to my knowledge, there's not a a war type stat for football players. You know, they try to do it with QBR quarterback rating, but even that is kind of at the mercy of receivers and DBs and what happens with the wind, you know, maybe a guy tips the ball at the line of scrimmage. It's an interception. There's just so much to control that it's really hard to come up with a stat that says we can quantify this guy and compare him to the other guy. You know, pro football focus is probably the, the the closest thing we have to it and you know i know a lot of current and former players have a lot of gripes about that and you know how do they know what we're just supposed to do on this particular play and you know mm-hmm. their argument is that they're grading a thousand plays throughout the season maybe they mess up on five of them but that's a pretty ins- insignificant sample so you know if they're wrong on five to ten plays just because they don't truly know your assignment that's kind of going to get washed out in the data anyway i think you know the analytics thing is is awesome the more info you can get, the better. You know, there's a lot of stuff where you, know, you can figure out tactically, you know, if they're doing this, what percentage of the time is it going to be successful? What percentage of the time are they going to blitz out of this formation or blitz out of this front? And um, the more data you have, the better. And it's just figuring out how to get that data efficiently. You know, in Cleveland, you can see it taping the, the day before the NFL draft and the Browns strategy is and they've said it publicly and you know it seems pretty smart you know they're basically said that you look at the course of the draft and you know there's no real people who are able to consistently pick better players than others and we don't think we're you know superhuman or better than anyone else and we're just going to accumulate draft picks and give ourselves a higher chance of drafting players that end up being good and that's one of those quote-unquote analytics moneyball type philosophies flowing through the nfl right now you know we'll see if it pans out they certainly have a ton of draft picks and a ton of draft capital you know so we'll see how that plays out but i, I think you know the browns just because of de podesta and sashi and those other guys it's going to be fascinating to see the next three or four years of, of their progression yeah and in baseball you often talk about players as you know they're the same guy wherever they go there isn't really a an offensive system in the same way in baseball that there is in football or a defensive system for that matter so can you be a significantly better or more valuable player with one team than you would be with another in a way that doesn't apply to the same extent in baseball? Yeah, I definitely agree with that assessment. You know, you see it this time of year with the draft stuff where they talk about quarterbacks and they need this particular system to be successful or, you know, he's a guy who doesn't have a strong of an arm, so he needs to be in a system that's more on short, precise passing. And, you know, every player has the strengths and weaknesses, I think, when you look at, you know, Belichick, I think one of the things that people have praised him most about is being able to get the best out of every player and um, putting in a, the player in the best position to succeed. You know, you want to utilize the strengths and try to minimize the weaknesses if they have any. And I think every coach does that, you know, to, to what extent they're able to do it will determine their success and being able to get the most out of their guys. And it's just, it's, it's interesting. I think offensive linemen for the most part, there's only so many ways you can block a guy. I mean, there are a couple extreme variations of systems that are really different. You look at, you know, Kyle Shanahan, who just got hired in San Francisco, who was with Atlanta last year as the offensive coordinator. And that offense, the offense line, you need to be fast. I mean, everything they do is very, very 
uh, fast at a high tempo, a lot of running. So you, you'll see linemen who are typically a little on the leaner side, a little smaller. You know, you still want guys strong, but you, you have to be fast and in shape. You, know, you have some offenses that are more predicated on power and you'll see bigger offensive linemen who, you know, maybe speed and, and immediate quickness isn't their thing, but, uh, they're big, they're strong, they can move guys. But that's really it for an offensive lineman. And at the end of the day, you're only going to utilize those specialties a few times in a game. You look at other positions, whether it's a running back, you know, there are guys who are 6'1, 250 and guys who are 5'8, you know, 185. They're going to be different players. They're going to be uh, utilized in a different way. And at the end of the day, the onus is on the coach to figure out what a guy does best, put him in the position to succeed. And the scheme really does make a huge difference regardless of position, but especially more at the skill positions and quarterback. Yeah. Just to wrap up, we were talking to Blum also about how he went from some really losing teams to some really winning teams, won a World Series. So you went from the Browns who were three and 13 to the Chiefs who were 12 and four in first place. So I'm curious about this is shocking football knowledge out of you. Uh, believe me, I have pro football reference up in multiple tabs right now, and I'm, I'm, I'm staring at it very closely. But did that change from losing team to winning team affect your motivation at all? Or are you just kind of doing the same thing and hoping that it ends up in victories, but it's not going to change your performance all that much? It makes the week a lot better to uh, to have won yeah. the week uh, the game before. You know, for offensive line, at the end of the day, I'm just trying to block my guy as best as I can on every particular play. You know, you just have to cliche, do your job type of thing, but you're really just doing your job every single play. You're, you're contributing to your one eleventh of the offense on that particular play and winning and losing. You can have a bad game and win. And, you know, that's been kind of cool in Kansas City. You have a, a bad game or two and the team still wins and, you know, you're not feeling totally down and, and you know, totally like you let the team down. Uh, so that's been a cool thing to be able to have victories and still play poorly. Um, but you're just going about your job the same. I mean, I wouldn't say I play any harder or have more motivation. I think, you know, that would kind of be putting myself down for the years in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. Most of the guys that are quote unquote professionals and go about their business the right way. I mean, you're playing your hardest regardless. It is a business. And if you're not performing, whether you're on a good or a bad team, they're going to cut you. So uh, you understand the business, you understand the NFL, the lack of guaranteed contracts, anything can change in any moment. You're playing as hard as you can every play. All right. Well, you can find Mitch on Twitter at Mitch Short 72. He and his brother, Jeff, who is also an NFL player, had a book come out last year, Eat My Shorts, Our Story of NFL Football, Food, Family, and Faith. Mitch, thank you for being our first football player. Glad it could be you. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for having me on. That was fun. Okay, so that is it for today. We will be back on Monday. Thank you, Michael. Talk to you on Monday.